Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Drs. Morgan L.W. Hazelton, Rachel K. Hinkle, and Michael J. Nelson to discuss their new book, The Elevator Effect, Contact and Collegiality in the American Judiciary, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Does it matter if just judges are nice to each other? The elevator effect argues that how judges interact with each other has an important effect at every stage of their judicial process. Previously, scholars have explained judicial behavior in terms of the law, the ideological attitudes of the judges, external and internal constraints, and the background characteristics of the judges, such as gender, race, or prior professional experiences. The elevator effect presents the first comprehensive examination of the importance of interpersonal relationships among the judges for judicial decision-making and legal development. Hazelton, Hinkle, and Nelson argue that collegiality affects nearly every aspect of judicial behavior. More frequent interpersonal contact among judges diminishes the role of ideology to the point where it is both quote, substantively and statistically imperceptible, close quote. The book also shows that collegiality affects both the language judges use when they disagree with each other and the precedents they choose to support their arguments with. Dr. Morgan L.W. Hazelton is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and School of Law by courtesy at St. Louis University, She studies how features of court systems influence the decisions that both litigants and judges make. Dr. Rachel K. Hinkle is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Buffalo. Her research focuses on judicial politics with particular attention to gleaning insights into legal development from the content of judicial opinions through the use of computational text analytic techniques. Dr. Michael J. Nelson is a professor of political science at Penn State University. He studies judicial politics, especially public attitudes towards law and courts, judicial behavior, and the politics of court reform. I'm delighted to welcome Rachel and Morgan back to New Books in Political Science and Michael to New Books in Political Science. Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to speak with you. Yes, thank you, Susan. As Morgan said, she and I are excited to be back, and we're excited to be here uh, with Mike to talk about our newest book. Yes, thank you so much. It's it's great to be here to get to talk about the book, uh, especially as the Supreme Court starts a new term soon. Um, you write in the acknowledgments, and it's really clear from even the way you introduce yourselves and say hi to each other, that this book is a about collegiality among judges, but it came about because of the bonds the three of you had forged over time. Um, This wasn't even originally a book project. Uh, So let's start by each of you saying a little bit about your own interests in judicial behavior and how you came to write this book. Michael, do you want to go first? 
Sure. So we were all office mates in, in graduate school. And I think sharing an office together made us all, or certainly made me appreciate how much the people that you see every day affect both your quality of life at work, uh, as well as the, the decisions that you make. Uh, and of course, the decisions that you're making as a graduate student aren't nearly as important as those you make if you're a, a federal judge. But uh, most of my work is in judicial behavior regarding state Supreme Courts um, and thinking a lot about how elections and, and your relationships with constituents affect your behavior on the bench. And in talking with Morgan and Rachel, uh, I think we realized that it's strange that we talk about judges all the time as if they operate completely individually when we know that people in workplaces all over uh, are affected by their colleagues and everything they do, right? That's why there are so many advice columns out there about how to get along with people at work. Uh, and so uh, for me, it was it was both an opportunity to write with people who I, I love and who um, are an important part of my professional development as, as an academic, but also to, to think about how relationships among people affect the way they do their work. Rachel, what about you? Well, I've got a bone to pick with Mike because he covered that answer so well. He really doesn't leave that much for the rest of us, but in kind of good sibling fashion, academic sibling fashion, I have to give him a hard time. That's my job. Um, I would add to that, like, not only did we get to know each other and that, like, being in the same office was so formative for our personal and professional relationships with each other. I mean, the fact that that happened during graduate school, I think, was formative in a certain kind of way. So, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you, you told us ahead of time, Susan, a lot of graduate students listen to this podcast. I think looking back, uh, graduate school feels like a very challenging time in your life. And I think that's absolutely right. And it brings out both the best and worst in people. So if you can form good working relationships during that crucible, <laughs> you're really set up for the future. So for the graduate students out there suffering through it, um, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> but it's really worth it because the, the career and the relationships and the research on the other side are, are so much fun and, and so interesting. And I get the sense just reading the footnotes that it actually wouldn't be possible for one of you to do the project. Like you, you, you bring very different backgrounds to it. Like Michael is saying, you know, he's, he's saying state judges, well, they get elected. That's an entirely different kind of motivation than for Supreme Court justices or appellate justices who are uh, appointed for life. And, you know, uh, uh, Rachel and Morgan have done work on, um, on briefs and we have a great podcast, which I will link to in the show notes on, on their book, recent book on that. So, so you're constantly referring to others. So I, I really get the sense it's almost like you're pursuing a set of research projects and in these different combinations. It's, it's, it's terrific. I really, and, and that's wonderful advice for grad students. Morgan, uh, what about you? What, um, how did you come into this, uh, and, is, and does it dovetail with all of your other work, or, or, or not always in the way that I'm pretending it does? Oh, no. I mean, I certainly have just really loved working on aspects of litigation and briefing with Rachel, and I also do work that is more focused on litigants, but that interaction of... I'm really into how individuals interact with each other and how it affects, right, these systems of what 
happens? What are the laws we're seeing? What are the opinions that we're getting? And so this was a really lovely project to work on that. And uh, also one of the things that I really appreciated was we had a really nice office set up that let us talk about our coursework, about our research interests. And that was intentional on the part of Andrew Martin, who's now the chancellor at WashU. It's something he had thought about. And so to see sort of the ramifications of institutional design by your own advisor, right, while you're talking about, okay, how are the courts structured, I think was really useful to us in launching this project. And I could tell you a really different story about institutional design at the University of Chicago that is exactly the opposite of that, how you could turn colleagues against each other and, you know, and make sure there's no collaboration. Okay. Anyway, I'll get in trouble for that, but it's okay. It's true. Um, so we're going to, in uh, what Michael says about uh, the judges that he studies, just reminds me that in the book and in our discussion, we're going to distinguish between judges, meaning the people who work in our federal courts, and the justices, who are only nine people who are appointed for life on the Supreme Court. You're very, very careful throughout the book uh, to, you know, to distinguish that judicial behavior may be different among those two groups and also similar. And we'll handle that in the conversation. But I did, I did want to flag the different terms for the many people who are not SCOTUS nerds, and you know don't spend their lives on this. Okay, let's start with the field as it existed before you wrote this book. Um, I mentioned in the opening that political sciences scientists have previously explained judicial behavior according to four models. And I think it would be really helpful to briefly review what we have known for a long time about judges and justices and how they make decisions. So we've got law, attitudes, uh, in strategy or internal and external con- constraints, and then background characteristics. So would somebody start us off with um, the law and just give the sort of the brief version of what it is that political scientists have thought about this? I'm happy to start. And I know my brilliant colleagues will help fill in what I'm going to say. So Almost a straw man version is that in the beginning, there was the law, right? And there was this idea, law tells judges exactly what to do. And then came this legal realism, this idea that no, a judge's individual attitudes matter. They're not just discovering the response. And sometimes this is set up as a fight between law professors and then political scientists are coming in and saying, well, ideology matters and attitudes matter. I find most law professors are adhering to a version of legal realism, maybe as not strongly as political scientists. And at this point, all but not all political scientists think that law is doing some work to frame outcomes. So we end up with sort of the beginning is law versus attitudes. And then we have a lot of brilliant work by Lee Epstein, Jack Knight, many people that we draw from and know saying, well, really it's about strategy as well. There are internal and external constraints, how justices are going to have to deal with each other, how they're going to have to deal with the other branches, how lower court judges are going to have to deal with the Supreme court 
or appellate courts or what or a public right and so that's all built out we also have work on background characteristics how is it that your experiences shape your decision making on the bench all of these things but we really saw and work by Landis Posner and Epstein really started highlighting hey judges are people they care about other things and one of them is relationships that's something judges themselves talk a lot about but let me let Mike and Rachel sort of fill in as well I, I think I think it's important to to emphasize that you know of course we're not the first people that have ever thought that like oh you know relationships matter uh, you know like Mor- Morgan said Epstein Landis and Posner's book talks about that and and there's a, a long literature in studies of circuit courts on what they call panel effects so in you know circuit courts decide cases in panels of three judges and there's a well-known empirical uh, regularity where if you have two Democratic judges uh, and a Republican judge, they're going to decide cases a little differently than they would uh, if you had three Democratic judges. Um, the, the, the composition of the, of the panel matters. Um, and I think what we started to, to think about when we started the project was that all of these existing explanations primarily emphasize the individual judge, right? The individual judge's background, the individual judge's interpretation of the law. And what we wanted to do is to think about how it is, especially because in the U.S. federal judiciary, unlike almost any other workplace, except maybe academia, uh, you, you get your job for life. And so you have real long-term costs and considerations in terms of your relationships with these coworkers. Because in the same way that you look across the table in a faculty meeting and you know that you're going to be working with somebody for the next 20 or 30 years, uh, the the judges on the Supreme Court or the the judges on a a federal court uh, know that they've got to keep those long-term relationships in mind uh, even as they're deciding cases in the short term. And, and I didn't mean to suggest in any way that this book isn't building in an incredibly respectful way on all of the work that's been done by political scientists in the past. It does. In fact, it really models how it is we should talk about the research that has come before and also the research that has has helped us do the work that we have now done. So I think you have a lovely balance between aggressively claiming that this is different. And I think it is different, just maybe because of the amount of testing that you do of your theory. Um, so it, 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 it's methodologically somewhat different, I think, from, from, from past books or past suggestions about collegiality that are in other literatures. But just, so you, I think you do a really great job of explaining what other people have done, what you're trying to do, and um, and moving it forward. We're going to use a term that I think may not be um, maybe hard for, for, for some listeners. You know, the press almost always talks about SCOTUS, but you're talking about appellate courts, um, and also you're mentioning these panels and these sort of small groups of judges that work together. So very, very briefly, the sort of paragraph version, like what is an appellate court? And, you know, do they always have this? Yeah, Rachel, just take take us through this. Okay. And this is my, while Morgan does a lot of stuff in, on litigation and Mike does stuff in state Supreme Courts, the U.S. Courts of Appeal are my jam, right? Like, 
um, super interested in that. I clerked in the courts of appeals before I went and got my PhD. And it's my experiences there have been a rich source of research questions like, what about that? Um, anyway, so the U.S. Courts of Appeals are the layer of the federal courts directly below um, the U.S. Supreme Court. And we're going to tie in a little bit to our discussion of the different types of judicial decision making here. Um, everybody in the in the U.S. federal system has a right to at least one appeal. And that happens in these in these U.S. Courts of Appeals. We also call them circuit courts or courts of appeals. Those terms are interchangeable. The judges we're talking about in our book, as opposed to the justices, are on these courts of appeals. Um, they're arranged geographically, so some number of states are clumped together uh, to form a circuit. Right, so there's there's 12 geographic ones. 11 cover clumps of states, and one covers the District of Columbia. Uh, because these courts have to address every appeal raised, they have quite a large case. So, in very rough rule of thumb. In one year, the courts of appeals deal with about as many cases as SCOTUS has in their entire history, right? That just kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of the scope um, of what's happening. To do that, um, each of these circuits has a, has a different number of judges. They range from, um, you know, a handful up to 20-something. Um, they are Each case is assigned to a panel of three judges. Um, every few weeks, new panels are so about every four to six weeks, a panel will be formed, will be assigned a group of cases, and that group of cases will go through the entire process um, with those three judges. But those panels are shuffled on a regular basis. So to be a circuit court judge is to have eight to 20 something colleagues. Any given case you're on, you're going to be working with two of those colleagues or sometimes one colleague and then one person um, kind of another federal judge, maybe a district judge, maybe from another circuit brought in to help out. Um, those folks are judges sitting by designation. Oh, they're kind of an interesting unsung story in our book because they're kind of the comparison point. They're in all of our models, um, but we wouldn't expect collegiality to work there because it's a single shot game. You sit with that judge one time, you probably don't have to work with them again. So they're kind of always there in the background um, as a little bit of a comparison point. But mostly we focus on those uh, those colleagues in your circuit who of the hundreds of cases you're resolving every year, thousands over your career, all those decisions are being made with two other people. Um, and it's that that group endeavor that is the core to our analysis of the, the circuit courts. Probably more than a paragraph. Sorry. No, perfect. No, no, no. That's really, really good. And, and look, uh, people use the podcast for lots of stuff. And sometimes they use it for undergraduate reading where they can't assign your book. And so to have that kind of a nice, clear explanation, I may, you know, I may put this in some syllabuses to say like, here's a really good, go ahead, and Rachel. I forgot one piece I was going to say, which is the link to the legal model, the attitudinal model and the strategic model is, um, as we, as political scientists think about the effect of law, one of the, we don't think law matters a lot at the Supreme Court simply because in those cases, by definition, the law is usually ambiguous. In the circuit courts, law is more clear in a lot of their cases. So where we expect kind of other things, extra legal factors to matter, we expect them to matter more when the law is less clear. So that's going to be a subset of circuit cases. Well, it tends to be pretty much all Supreme Court cases. So it's not that we don't think law matters, but where the law stops, what picks up? And we've talked, you know, everybody's been talking about ideology and strategy and background. 
And that's where we're bringing relationships um, to the to the conversation where law stops, relationships can step in and start to have an important role like these other things we've looked at. Okay, let's talk about uh, the, 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 the sort of the meat of the of the theory of the book, uh, which is um, laid out in the first couple of chapters. So uh, you've already kind of covered the extent to which you're using previous work in political science, and you've uh, alluded to, or maybe I have, that you're also taking, uh, uh, looking at scholarship from other fields like political psychology or small group decision making. But let's get the theory on the table. Um, You know, what, 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 what is it that you build as the theory that you're going to test um, in, in the book? So what we're really interested in is there's this idea of collegiality. With many definitions, we end up attaching ourselves to what we call a middle road explanation of collegiality, which is behavior that is aimed at maintaining relationships with your coworkers. And essentially, we think that while we can't observe collegiality directly, we can observe contact and things that should feed into collegiality. How much do you know each other? How much are you going to have to deal with each other in the future? And thinking through why might that matter? What are these theoretical mechanisms? So there's a lot of work that says perhaps this is about persuasion. As you know someone, a colleague better, you can craft the arguments you know they're going to find persuasive, and they're more likely to listen to you because they trust you. You're not a stranger who they're not sure about the intentions, right? There's someone that they know they can listen to. There's also the idea of suppression, right? Especially things, we know that dissents are rare on the Court of Appeals, right? And it may not be that the Court of Appeals judges just agree with each other all the time, but perhaps it's because they don't have time to write those dissents or because they really have to rely on each other so much that if they burn bridges, that's going to be very detrimental to to their workflow or to their how their daily you know work interactions are going or a number of other factors. So we really look both at issues of persuasion and suppression. And we end with, we don't think this is monocausal, right? We think that both are affecting and it varies based on which level of institution you have. Are we on the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court? And what we do in the book is armed with this idea of suppression and armed with this idea of, of persuasion, we think about how it could matter. And one of the, the big overriding, and, and you mentioned this in, in your introduction to the book, one of the big overriding conclusions is that probably the, the most important way that collegiality matters is by changing the effect that ideology has on judges' decisions. And so when I don't know somebody very well, I don't see them very often. Uh, I don't have a strong collegial relationship with them. Then we kind of expect the standard ideological model of, of judicial decision making. But when you have a stronger collegial relationship with somebody, you're concerned. You know, you're better able to persuade them. You're concerned about things that might lead you to suppress dissent, 
And those considerations come in in a way that makes the role of ideology much smaller than it is uh, when judges don't see each other. And so the, the big way that we look at this in the book, like Rachel mentioned, we use the fact that the uh, judges on the U.S. Courts of Appeals are spread out across the country uh, and they decide cases in panels of three. Uh, some of those judges have offices in the same building. Some of those judges are in the same circuit, so they'll decide the same case, but they work in different cities. Um, and so what we find is that the effect of ideology between two judges who work in the same courthouse is essentially zero. Uh, but the effect of ideology uh, for a pair of judges who work in different courthouses is, is pretty strong, like traditional uh, political science models would suggest. And um, go ahead, Ray, oh, uh, Morgan. So sorry, just to jump in really quickly, Mike sort of really beautifully summarized that. And we see that even when it's the Court of Appeals judges in the same courthouse as trial judges, how they look at their reversals. So we're seeing this in a lot of different contexts. So one of the interesting things about this book is is the data. Um, and in order to sort of test this theory, one of the things you're looking at is all published U.S. Court of Appeals search and seizure opinions from 1953 to 2010, uh, which if, if you're not thinking about search and seizure all of the time, this is when the Supreme Court was developing this uh, interpretation and understanding of amendments. So there's just lots, uh, again, for the non-court nerds, there's lots of things that just sit around for a long time, like the First Amendment. Nobody really, the Supreme Court didn't talk about the First Amendment. It didn't decide it, what it meant until the 20th century. So you've picked this time period, I think, for that reason. Um, why this topic? I wondered, um, and 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 if I haven't clarified the kind of richness of the data, like, please, please add. Yeah, go uh, ahead, Rachel. Sure. Um, so there are a couple of kind of objects behind uh, the collection of the data. The kind of the benefit you get from picking a single topic is you can examine judicial decision-making and kind of naturally control for a lot of other things that might potentially bias your results. So, um, so that's kind of the added value. However, by picking one topic, you can potentially come up with results that aren't applicable to other contexts. So search and seizure, right? This is a wonderful period of development uh, for this area of law, but it has some other nice features. One, it includes both civil and criminal cases. Right. So we get uh, Section 1983 cases, which are prisoners um, arguing that their Fourth Amendment rights have been violated. Those are civil proceedings. We've got criminal proceedings where people are seeking to suppress evidence. Um, so there's a nice mix of those two broad types of cases. They're also frequent enough that most judges have experience in that kind of issue. If we, you pick something like patent litigation, some judges might have more familiarity with that topic than others. and It might be less generalizable. There's also some kind of iconic political science research uh, that has looked at search and seizure as a topic and it's kind of found to be applicable to other areas. So it has that benefit as well. And as you mentioned, and I think I did briefly, it's a lot of cases. So that time span for the circuit courts is a little over 15,000 published cases to kind of to start with, um, to, to start with when we look at our empirical analysis. So it's, 
it's specific enough to kind of be informative. And there's so many cases, you simply can't look at them all in the circuit courts. For a Supreme Court analysis, we look at everything because the Supreme Court database exists and is amazing and we utilize it, that that amazing, that amazing tool. But for the circuit courts, it's so much you kind of have to narrow your focus and that gives us those kind of nice benefits along with it. And I got the fantastic task of also supplementing with some qualitative interviews. I spoke to seven Court of Appeals judges, uh, five former Supreme Court clerks, and actually some of the judges were also former Supreme Court clerks, and then four at the Court of Appeals level to also try to to build on this beautiful data, much of which Rachel uh, had worked on and then we, we built upon. More of this collegiality, because for somebody to be willing to share the data that it took them so much time to put together, Rachel shaking her head. Well, but again, I, because one of the ways we were trained, right, Morgan talked about Andrew Martin and how he was our advisor. And um, I, I also worked with, with Jim Spriggs. And anyway, all the people we worked at WashU, we were raised academically with a very strong ethic of sharing your data. Yes, at some point you have to keep it to yourself to publish and you know get tenure and further your career. But um, just the way we move research forward is to share our data, the way we ensure replicability and that everybody's doing their scientific analysis appropriate is you know um, all like free and open data, share it with anybody. Um, and so that it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's an important thing to all of us. Yes, I share with Morgan and Mike because I like them, but also uh, just that it's part of that broader idea of like share the wealth, right? Okay. I'm not sure if we want to add anything else to uh, what you gleaned about the U.S. Court of Appeals, but I do want to also move on to the chapter about SCOTUS. Um, anything else we want to? Okay. So... And, and Morgan mentioned that you talked to, um, uh, okay, actually, Michael, go ahead. I, so one, one thing I just realized at this point we, we haven't talked about, and partially this, is, this was on me because I was talking about it before, we, we measure collegiality in different ways in the book. Um, and, and Morgan talked earlier about these notions of suppression and, and persuasion and in addition to using the fact that uh, judges live in different places in their in their circuit, work in different places in their circuit, share courthouses or not, we we also rely on the fact that the circuits are different sizes, which affects the probability that you're going to be on a panel with somebody again soon, and and we connect that to the suppression mechanism, thinking that. You know, the more likely you are to see somebody again soon, that future looking behavior affects the likelihood that you would need to suppress your dissent or you would choose to. And then with regard to persuasion, we think about backward looking behavior. The, the longer amount of time that two judges have served together, the more information you, you have. You know that you know, if you think about your colleagues at work, the longer you've worked together, you know the sorts of arguments they're going to dismiss out of hand, the sort of things that they find uh, credible or, or are likely to sway them. And so the, the mix of forward-looking and backward-looking behavior uh, really comes into play. And that backward-looking behavior 
is really important in the chapter of the book where we talk about the Supreme Court. Thanks so much for doing that, Michael. And also, I want to uh, repeat a term that you use throughout the book, which is called is co-workers with life tenure, which we've been dancing around, but we haven't said. And um, uh, because I think that really brings home a lot of what you're, you're, you're trying to make these analogies to the way we all work with people, but then adding this idea that we're in it for life. And for some academics, that actually makes a lot of sense because we work with people for life. For most people, that's really not how the workplace is organized. Um, so thank you so much for that uh, clarification and also expansion of like what the findings are. So um, Morgan, you mentioned the talking to the clerks. I mean, the, the Supreme Court is famously not very transparent in terms of their procedures. We, we've had a little bit of a look behind the curtain because of the Dobbs leak and a little bit more conversation about, well, what is it that they do and who looks at the documents and who's involved. But we really don't know a ton. So it, it's incredible for you to have had this experience interviewing these clerks and also judges who had previously clerked. So what is it that we know uh, from your book about the Supreme Court, uh, how it has operated previously, how it's operating in in our time um, in terms of these kinds of relationships? Right. So in speaking to the clerks and also looking at the right quantitative analyses, when we're thinking about the Supreme Court, the clerks give us a really nice view of that because in reality, a lot of the conversations between chambers are more likely to happen between clerks than two justices. They tend to speak all at the same time, but there is, as the interviews and prior work indicate, some back channeling that likely happens through the clerks. Right, that these conversations of just feeling out. And there's also just information sharing. These clerks are doing a lot of work to help build the opinions. So they're they're an important type of collegiality as well. Their views vary. Their justices varied, right? Some had very warm, embracing justices. Some had less, they were less so. But one thing that they do talk about is perceptions that the justices cared about collegiality, they behaved in ways that encouraged collegiality, and that that was likely not always the case. There is sort of in the ether this idea of like, oh, it was nine scorpions in a bottle, right? This idea that the court has at times been very at odds. Most of the clerks I spoke to clerked during a time where they felt like it was fairly stable. These justices had tended to be together for a long time, going to our measure of, you know, co-tenure. And, and that that seemed to really matter because at the Supreme Court, many things that vary at the Court of Appeals do not, right? They're always sitting what we call on bunk. The entire court is hearing every one of these merit cases together, as opposed to the Court of Appeals, where they're being randomized into these three judge panels. Um, so we just don't have any of that variation in, oh, how likely am I to see you on the next case? Very, very, very likely. As the book um, 
continues, you talk about the kind of behavior that goes across courts and you use the data on the Fourth Amendment. And it's part of why, um, as was explained earlier, why it was chosen, that it allows you to do this kind of, of, of analysis. Do you want to say a little bit more about the cross-court, pardon me, um, connections? Sure. So, so every time the courts of appeals are deciding a case, they're reviewing a decision that's made by a trial court judge. And these trial court judges have access to a lot of information that the circuit court judges uh, don't get. So, you know, when there's a trial, that that district judge is in the courtroom. They see the witnesses. And, and these judges are supposed to take into account their judgment of the credibility of the witnesses. And that, you know, they get to see it face to face. When I'm a circuit court judge, I'm reviewing the transcript. And you know, we all know how much can be lost in the written word. And so what what we do in, in that chapter of the book is to say, you know, collegiality is different. Uh, when it's hierarchical than when you're on the same court. But in the same way, when you see somebody often uh, in the hallway, they develop a reputation. And, and you know what people you trust to make good judgments. You know what people, when they made a judgment, you know it's probably wrong. Uh, and, and you know who's in the middle. And what we find in that chapter mirrors what we find with the courts of appeals, which is that when, when the judges don't work closely together, collegiality concerns are low, and that the information that's most obvious about them, whether that trial court judge is liberal or conservative, plays a big role in, in how that circuit court judge votes. But when they work closely together, right, when you've got this, this information you get from face-to-face contact, that really muddles uh, the the relationship between ideology and and decision making because you've got all kinds of other considerations that can compete with ideology, and so when these circuit court judges are deciding whether or not to reverse a lower court judge or not, when they don't work together, you see ideological decision making. When they do work in the same building, uh, we we don't see any effect of ideology. Rachel, I just wanted to, as a quick follow up to kind of link this idea of the physical buildings. When we say they work closely, we're talking about the federal courthouse again. So federal, we kind of all know, right, the the physical image of SCOTUS, right? The Supreme Court building where the Supreme Court sits, right? All the other federal court buildings are just federal court buildings and they have district judges who are the trial court judges and they house court of appeals judges. So just like a circuit judge will have some of their colleagues in the building, maybe some of them are the only circuit judge in their building, they also have district judges in that building, and district judges operate in a physical location where there are circuit judges nearby. Now, obviously, they all have separate chambers, office, suites, but judges will ride the same elevators. They park in the same parking garages. They respond to the same um, fire drills, right, where you're huddled together for 20 minutes waiting for, you know, things to happen and everybody's sitting around chit-chatting. So that's kind of the inspiration for the elevator effect is like, how does the fact that you might be in an enclosed space with a person at any time on any day affect judicial decision-making? I think it, it comes out um, in the in the circuit court stuff with the same building measure and then very much so in this hierarchical chapter, how do those, right, you know, running into somebody in the lunchroom 
um, going down to the, the, the library, right? The, the courthouse library and running into people there. How does that affect um, what's going on? And, and in the last chapter, you, you take a lot of these uh, uh, observations uh, towards pointing towards potential reforms. I mean, so here you are saying that, look, when people are in the same building in these different courts and they're all housed together, this could mean less ideological uh, voting, which I think most people want, not everybody, but a lot of people do. So that's a very, very concrete geographical, uh, sounds very much like you're also taking away something from your um, dissertation advisor there of thinking about geography and how much it matters and the book for because people don't have it in front of them, you know, has a picture of an elevator, you know, the, on the old fashioned kind of elevator with the clock in the top and the sandstone building and um, it's the Supreme Court elevator, actually. Okay, so the Supreme Court <laughs> elevator, I meant to look that up. And so, um, Okay, uh, we're, we have, and I definitely want to talk about the last chapter and the court reform. But first, one of the things that you talk about in the book has to do with limiting behavior, you know, of sort of suppressing certain things that you might not do. Um, and, and you focus on the language of dissent. And you, and you say that, you know, this can really run from a kind of like, you know, benign legal terms, like, I don't think this is strict scrutiny, as opposed to really critical language, colorful language, snarky language. So, um, and you only go up to 2010. Okay, so I one question I have is, you know, has there been some sort of change in recent years? Anecdotally, I think there has been, but I think that might also be selection bias, because I read cases on abortion and the Second Amendment. So, people are hot on those topics. But tell us a little bit about how collegiality affects dissent and this kind of level of criticalness. And also the extent to which you also say judges are, it's not just that they won't be critical and that maybe they won't dissent, but also like how they cite each other, like who, who they're willing to think of as a, as a really good reason for why they believe what they believe. Yeah, those two. So we have a chapter on the language of dissent and the, the ch- and another chapter on the choice of who to cite. And in some ways, those are kind of like the positive or really the negative and positive sides of a coin. Because if you're writing a dissenting opinion, disagreement is given, right? So we're thinking about conditional on the fact that you disagree. How do you express that? You know, when I was growing up, my mother told me a million times and she told me once, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And and that's it goes as much for dissenting the opinions it does for me talking back to my mom, uh, right? So that's kind of the negative. How do you express yourself when you're doing something negative? And citing someone's precedent in majority opinion is usually a positive thing, right? And there's no there's so many precedents you can cite. There's no downside to not citing someone because that will. So there's kind of only positive ways to build the relationship. And if you're writing a dissent. There's a lot of ways to harm a relationship. So those kind of dovetail nicely next to each other. And we find that collegiality plays a role in both of those in some of the same ways expect based on that same groundwork theory. But let's talk about dissent because saucy language is fun, right? It makes headlines, it gets people's interest, and it's a good time. For those of us who don't have to work with, you know, the people who are slinging these phrases at each other. 
Um, so there's, there's actually an entire line of research outside of political science, outside of law, of folks who study politeness and language. And we draw on that research. And one of the ways, uh, one of the items from linguistic research that has been drawn on in legal research is that you can annoy somebody by withholding politeness, right? We have expected politeness techniques. In a conversation, we don't interrupt each other. Now you'll note in oral argument, interruptions aren't impolite because it's not, like nobody expects you to not interrupt in oral argument. So here's the expectation in dissenting opinions. There is an expectation that when a judge states their dissent, they insert something like, I respectfully dissent. An expression of respect, an expression of um, something they agree with. Sometimes it's an expression of reluctance. I reluctantly have to dissent. My hands are tied. So we've talked about this in legal circles as respectfully dissent. We dig into the linguistic literature and pull out some other manifestations of that, and we measure it. We go look at every single dissenting opinion. It's like a thousand in the circuit courts, over thirty-five hundred in the Supreme Court, and we say, "Did you say dissent and leave off that respectfully?" We know this is like the judicial equivalent of like the gloves are off, right? I'm coming in, or. Did you say some, or did you include some politeness form of respect, or did you take the route that uh, Justice O'Connor used to talk about and kind of do neither of those? Do you do the neutral thing and you just say the court should have been reversed, right? There's ways to avoid either of those. So we track polite, neutral, and rude dissents using this formulation across the circuit courts and the Supreme Court. What's interesting is when you track it over time, granted we end in the, you know, 2010, it's the 80s where those descent, those rude descents peak. And then they've been gradually coming down since then. So I, I agree with you. It'd be really interesting to see what's happened, you know, in the last, you know, um, decade plus and see if that proportion is coming back up. It's possible that it is, but it's possible that it isn't. One of the things we found at the Supreme Court is relationships somewhat counterintuitively increase the use of rude dissents. And you can see this with, if you think about your relationships with the people you're closest to, you can let loose with them a little bit in ways you can't with an acquaintance. Uh, Like Mike and Morgan and I could could probably, we can harass each other in pretty intense ways and we're fine because we have such a solid relationship. So for example, in the Supreme Court, if you think, take two justices who are ideological allies. It's kind of our, we're going to build this. They're on the same side of the spectrum, whatever that might be. In their first year, when they do dissent from each other, they're going to use that rude form about 20% of the time. 15 years down the road, that number is going to raise to 30%, right? So these are estimates based out of our empirical models, extrapolated, right? So to, to raise, you know, that 10%, we think that shows that it is an effect of the relationship, but now they're comfortable enough that when they really feel strongly, they can express that in a way that's going to get attention of the public, of future policymakers. Um, so it's just kind of an, an interesting finding. Um, we do find in the courts of appeals, the more expected interactions between, like if you're going to work with somebody in the future, you're not going to be super rude to them because that's not going to benefit you. So we see the more expected story in the circuit courts. There's so much in the book, and I, I want to uh, take a moment to just say the book is beautifully written. It's clear, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I'm not a quantitative scholar. I 
don't like, you know, flipping through the books and seeing some of the graphs and realizing, oh, okay, this is going to be tough on me. Um, this is this is a book that makes it all clear. You're you're it you you walk everybody through what you're doing. Um, it's accessible for any kind of graduate student. It's accessible to undergraduates. There are chapters of this book that would be handleable by a student in upper division class. And the writing is so clear. The citations are so good. You give people really great background in what the literature has been. So, you know, for people who are listening to the ways in which the three of you are defining things, that is how this book is written. And it's it's really a testament to the kind of work that you've done to do something so complicated, but also to clearly communicate it. Um, and share, as you do, very generously um, with the other scholars who've come before you. The last pair, uh, last chapter is about court reform, um, and I'm wondering, what is it? There's, you know, the court reform has sort of died right now. But what what does this book tell us about maybe how we can? make changes that don't require constitutional changes or, 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 or big money changes. But, um, you know, what are some things that the book tells us uh, that perhaps policymakers, judges themselves, clerks, et cetera, should pay attention to? I think there's a lot of really lovely ways. And I, I suspect we'll all have a couple different favorites. One that came out of the interviews that was really interesting to me is that in some of the circuits, all of the judges in the circuits are seeing opinions before they can, before they go out and can give some input. And this helps create sort of circuit-wide sort of interaction. And it seems, and there are circuits that have changed towards that approach. And it does seem like something worth studying and figuring out, would this be helpful generally? There's certainly indications that it would be. To, to me, especially coming out of the pandemic, uh, it's about, insti- about um, the value of being in person and that, that money that the judiciary spends to fly judges, to hear cases together in person so they can deliberate in person, to hold judicial conferences in the circuit for the judges to get together is money that's well spent if, if what you're trying to do is reduce the effect that ideology has on, on judicial behavior. Uh, but, it, but it's also, I think, important to emphasize the, that it's kind of a Goldilocks problem when, when we think about like how big should courts be? Uh, you know, there's this, there's this continual conversation about whether to split up the Ninth Circuit, which is the, the circuit that covers California and, and the Western U.S. Uh, and on the one hand, uh, a court that's too big means that uh, the judges won't see each other often enough and they'll be too spread out that, that you could have really ideological decision-making. But that doesn't mean that you want uh, a three-person court where they're deciding all of the cases all the time, uh, because you can also go stir-crazy, uh, as, as many of us found during the pandemic, being stuck with the same people all day. Uh, so um, it, it's, it's really, in terms of institutional design, thinking about what 
what exactly you're trying to do and and what sorts of reforms would would be most helpful um okay as we conclude is there something that we haven't talked about that you really were um happy with in the book or just want to push push in at this point last word basically Well, all I can say is uh, thank you to my uh, my co-panelists. We had a lot of discussions where we said we dissented or concurred from each other on things as our own little three academic panel, uh, but they've been great to be co-authors with, and it, you can't talk about the book without saying that, I think. Well, And, and I, I think the, the book's a, a good example about how research can be fun. Um, you know, we, we worked on this book for a long time, we presented chapters in, in different places and we got encouragement from other people in the discipline about how to take it from a single paper into a book project. Uh, and sometimes we focus on all the things that are really hard about research when when there's also a lot of, of good things um, and, and good co-authors are a, a big part of that. Well, and Morgan, you have the last word. Fantastic. So these people are terrible. No, actually, um, they're fantastic. And I will say, I just really recommend writing a book about collegiality with people that you've been collegial with for a long time. But I also want to thank you so much for this opportunity and chatting with you is always so lovely. And I think we don't have a ton we need to add at the end because you've asked such fantastic questions. And I just wanted to thank you. Well, yes, thank I, you. Uh, that is so sweet. Um, you know, I sometimes people ask me, why do I do this? Because I'm not paid for it. But I, it's because I read all these books that I would never read. I would see the book like uh, in the APSA book room, or I would see it in, uh, you know, a, a book catalog or a tweet. But I frankly just wouldn't push myself through such a book because I have so many other things to do. And I have found that it has changed my teaching, it's changed my scholarship, and it's just changed how I even think about my service to the profession because I get to meet wonderful people like you and read great books like this. So thank you so much um, for making the time to be here in multiple time zones. Um, I've been talking with uh, Morgan Hazelton, Rachel Hinkle, and Michael Nelson, and they are the authors of The Elevator Effect, Contact and Collegiality in the American Judiciary. It's out from Oxford University Press, and we will have links to how you can buy it in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.